Hello, this is Ruin Willow of the Oh, Fuck Yeah with Ruin Willow podcast. I want to welcome you to my podcast today. I'm excited you're listening to this episode. On my podcast, I talk about sex, sexuality, and I read erotica, mine and others. Okay, and I have an amazing word from my sponsor. I want to thank my sponsor for sponsoring this episode. Okay, are you ready? Let's go. Amateur night. Regina didn't plan on taking her top off when she danced on amateur night, but when Mr. Dark Eyes laid out $20 bills on the stage, she was tempted. She didn't need the money. As a high-end sex therapist in L.A., she made a very decent living. She just enjoyed dancing. It exhilarated her. She felt free. When she danced in front of Mr. Dark Eyes, he calmly commanded her to take her top off, and she did. When he asked her for a private lap dance in the cherry pit, she was tempted, again not for the money, but because he was handsome, dressed well, and his dark eyes made her melt. Plus, when he slipped those $20 bills inside her panties and kept her bra, she had to give in to his command. What could possibly go wrong? When he and his lawyer showed up on Monday morning in her office, she soon found out. You'll love this billionaire age-gap romantic suspense because of the steamy scenes, female villain, and escalating suspense. Get it now. Amateur Night by D.E. Love. Today I have an awesome guest. An interview with Bianca. It's a certified sex educator, supervisor, and foundress of Annie Up. She teaches people how to be sexologists. We had a fascinating discussion because she is one of the people that teaches other people how to be sexologists. It's fascinating. She is an award-winning educator, curriculum writer, facilitator, and sexologist. She's the foundress of the Women of Color Sexual Health Network, the Laddie Negrix Project, Annie Up Virtual Freedom Professional Development School for Justice Workers, and hosts Latinosexuality.com. She's written several curricula that focus on communities of color. What's the real deal about love and solidarity and communication mixtape? Speak on it, Volume 1. And wrote the Sexual and Reproductive Justice Discussion Guide for the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, published in 2018. Bianca has been on the board of CLAGS, the LGBTQ Center at CUNY, the Black Girl Project, and Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. She is the lead educator for the Netflix film Crip Camp and led the efforts to create a curriculum that is rooted in disability justice practice, self-determination, and social-emotional learning competences. She will receive an honorary Ph.D. for her work of justice, equity, and inclusion in the U.S. sexuality field May 2020. Totally awesome. She's a Puerto Rican who was born and raised in Washington, D.C. She has great education, amazing experiences, and a huge array, obviously, of background and work that just really, it's amazing. <laughs> so we're going to get on to that. But before we do, I have an announcement to make. My Skinny Dipping at the Pond on a Hot Summer Day audiobook has just gone live. I'll put the links to that down in the podcast notes. And again, free copies, advanced review copies on my public 
page on Patreon where you can get an advanced review copy, get it for free, and hopefully you can review it. It is for sale on Amazon as well. I will put Bianca's links down in the podcast notes as well as my own to where you can find my audiobooks, my erotica, and other things that I am involved in. All right, let's get on to the meat of this interview. Let's meet Bianca. Oh, fuck yeah. Hello, everyone. I'm really, really excited to talk to this person today. My guest has got quite an amazing background and education and experience. I'm really excited to learn from her. And her name is Bianca, and she is a certified sex educator, PhD, MA, and CSES. What is that, Bianca? And welcome, by the way. Yeah, thank you. The CSES is Certified Sex Educator Supervisor. Okay. Certified, yeah, by our national in the United States national membership organization called ASECT. Yeah. Awesome. And then you're also the supervisor and founder of Annie Up, which is professional development, correct? Absolutely. Yes. It's a virtual freedom school. So everything's online and live. And it's really for sex educators and sexuality professionals in general who want to learn how to do the work that we're doing, but for the world that we've inherited, because it's very different than the one that I was trained to do the work in. So yeah. Awesome. Well, that sounds very interesting. And I'm amazed. How? What brought you to want to found this? I mean, that's pretty epic. Yeah. You know, I've been in the field since 1996. I started as a peer educator and I started undergrad. So I was pretty young and I know that <laughs> works. So, um, so I, you know, advocate and incredibly, incredibly, but encourage people to start whenever they feel that they're called to do something, especially with their peers. And, you know, 1996 was a long time ago. Right. Um, 25 years now. And so I was trained in a really particular way to offer medical-based sexuality education information to college students and athletes. And that's not what I do today. <laughs> a lot of what we were to do, a lot of the laws, a lot of the expectations around relationships and dating and just the medical advances and the medication and all the other things that are available to us now, vaccinations um, for healing, these have changed. And so have our responses to things like HIV. And so we're living in a time where there's so many new things happening that my training in 96 and then again in 2000 and then again and again just were not preparing me for what right? So I wasn't prepared to teach online. I really wasn't prepared to teach in front of people. Like nobody taught me, what do you do with your body when you have to Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Those are really <laughs> things, like this body, and we're not being taught how to take care of it as we do this work. So I've really taken a lot of the lessons and the knowledge and the community collaborations that I've been a part of over the past two decades and really created a curriculum guided by what I know people have said they want and need to learn about. And then also what I think is really important to doing this work based on what I was not prepared to do and what I've had to do. And um, so it really is about thinking, how do I want to do the work in the future? And how have I been trained by people who are trained at the same time as Bianca and are not thinking in a more advanced or forward way? Um, right. 
So I, I usually tell people I like to fill in the gaps of what remains from our trainings. So I don't do like one-on-one trainings, right? So if someone's listening, educator, that's great. But, you know, if you have no knowledge of anything, I'm not the place to go to first. Right. Build on a foundation that people usually have. And part of that foundation is unlearning some of the things that don't serve us anymore. Um, so yeah, so it's 10 classes and it's courses like abortion where mm-hmm. I was never really trained around abortion when I was a sex sexuality professional and sex educator. I had to seek that out by directly going to abortion clinics and, mm. and volunteering and being trained to be an abortion doula. And that's not the path for a lot of people right now. I think it will be, but right. yeah, I wanted to share Like what does an abortion doula know that has known for the past decade? That- right you can incorporate but also just you know things like staying on the abortion tip like so many more people are doing medication abortion with pills and there's Mm. a lot that we don't know about that has changed when it comes to when can people decide to have sex after they've had an abortion procedure whether it be medication Mm. or whether it be in clinic or surgical procedure and those are you know really common questions and when i was trained to do that kind of abortion work you know, doctors were saying don't have sex for up to four weeks after the wow. procedure. And today they're not saying that. Right. So okay. these are conversations that I think are really important that people have questions about. But if a sex educator's never talked about abortion or what happens to the body, why you need to heal in a particular way, um, they're not really ready to answer a lot of the questions that are gonna be coming up and that have been coming up for people around their bodies. So I really try to answer and fill in certain gaps and then the questions that people ask in real time is where my focus has been. So yeah, so just seeing people struggle with where to find information, how to critically engage with it, how to question it, uh, was really where it started from as well, people searching. I think it's really interesting. So yeah, you're more looking, you know, a lot of education is like, you need to learn the history of things, you need to learn what's been done, but you're more forward focused, it sounds like, which is really interesting, I imagine, trying to create content for people to help them be thinking, okay, now and forward more than, I mean, of course, obviously you're going to touch on some things in the past and how things have changed, but it's an interesting focus. And I'm sure it's, it's quite a challenge to, to do that. Or maybe does it, does it seem easy to you think in that way? Yeah. You know, I think it's part of how I'm, it's a coping strategy, I think too, for the <laughs> in the world in general. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, for me, I just was so disappointed at how unprepared I was to uh, yeah. education <laughs> and just sexuality information in general in a variety of different settings. So like I can write a lesson plan and a curriculum. I'm really great at it. I can think about how to support someone who's doing it, all those things. But I learned that because I didn't have the kind of support that I needed when I was literally doing the exact same thing. So right. people really resonate with that where it really is this instant click for them where they're like oh yeah nobody told me that I what's it going to be like for me to take a sip of water while I'm wearing a mask and there's no windows in the room during a pandemic right those are things that I've had the experience of having to do so troubleshooting with people thinking about what's possible people really want to do their work well and there's very few people who don't and I think it's it's important to honor those people who are really wanting to do that. But also I always, I've just witnessed how people, not just in our field, but in general, have really believed that their worthiness is connected to their productivity and to their work and what they contribute. And 
I've seen like how it really harms us and, you know, brings up more stress or leads to debilitating experience or leads to a disability. Um, and there's no support for us when we get to those points except for rest. And a lot of us just don't have this vision of retirement. We don't, we don't have the either privilege or power to think about it in that way. So I noticed that and saw that happening. I was like, I want to be able to age and not worry about anything and just really be able to sit on my porch and just watch people walk, watch people walk by. <laughs> right. It's always been like this idea of like, I hope I have the gift of aging, but also I, I want to stop working. <laughs> I don't want right. <laughs> and so really that's like, how do I get there? Has been like my question. And one of the, the large pieces is getting more sexuality professionals to do the work. Right. And so it's not just filling in the gap that exists for our field, but it's also helping people fill in the gap that I'm going to leave when I stop doing the work. Right. In a particular way. Not that I'm going to stop a hundred percent while I'm still alive, but you right. know, I'm not going to be fully in it a majority of my time. Right. So yeah. I so think I'll oh, go ahead. It's been a lot of that process too. We'll be back after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by the Spring Cleaning Champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure the man in your life grooms his carpets and his drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Have him clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch his confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and have him join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped. With our special offer, go to manscaped.com and use code RUIN. You have to use my new code RUIN, R-U-A-N, for the 20% off and free shipping. Have you ever been doing some oral pleasure and got some hairs in your mouth or your teeth? Well, <laughs> Manscaped can help with that. Try being clean-shaven or spring cleaning. After he uses Manscaped, you can say, hmm, let's get some busy with some spring fever in the bedroom. Try out Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It is an amazing trimmer that features two interchangeable heads, one for taking a little off the top and the new foil blade to go smooth. If you want to go smooth for spring cleaning, make sure you try out Manscaped products. Bring on those smooth skin sexy slaps in the bedroom. And how do you do that? Use Manscaped products to shave clean down in your pubic area. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code RUIN. You have to use my new code RUIN, R-U-A-N, all caps at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with code RUIN at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in his pants, right? In your pants if you're a man. <laughs> spring clean your groin area. Try smooth. Try it with Manscaped. I bet. That's interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah, like you're thinking about, okay, I'm, when I leave, there's going to be this big hole and I need to get people to continue on what I've been doing. Absolutely. Yeah. And that also just recognizing that like how all of us are so important to this field. And yes, it drives me wild and, and frustrating in a frustrating way uh, that people are still being taught about our bodies 
in a really medically inaccurate way that people just found yes. and think now <laughs> pleasure-based education and all they do around pleasure is talk about the clitoris stuff like that i'm like no we have to dream bigger that right. is people say the floor <laughs> <laughs> accurately about our bodies it is not pleasure based so yeah so really encouraging people to dream bigger think bigger about the work that they want to do and to also acknowledge that like when you no longer do this work or if you shift or change or if you die like there's going to be a hole in our community of work that can only have been filled by you so how can we fully show up and be present to do the work is um as, as long as we have capacity to. That's really been my drive. Um, yeah. I think a lot of people still have a misconception about what someone like you does or what, what a sex coach does or an intimacy coach. They really don't, some people really don't get it. Like, you know, some people think it's introducing you to kink only or pushing you into something. It's like, I just find it interesting that there's kind of like this ignorancy out there of what it actually is. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's because it's complicated and they're not all the same all the time, even though we have so many tools and words. Um, so the work that I do as a sex educator is really that, like I offer education. I don't necessarily offer advice. Right. I will give people options and encourage them to figure out which ones work best for them or try all of them. I don't offer therapy, so I'm not a therapist. Right. So what that usually looks like is also not offering advice. Like therapists don't offer advice. They offer like. <laughs> right. So I, you know, I don't diagnose people. I don't have to report to a licensing board or have this particular requirement to do the work that I do, which is one of the reasons why I chose to go towards a membership organization to demonstrate that like I can buy into and support and uphold a code of ethics that a collective has agreed upon, even if I wasn't considered when making those agreements. Right. I can still say, yeah, I'll do that. Um, and so it's different than like what a social worker is required to do or what a psychiatrist is in their state and also nationally. Um, and then also what I do, so a lot of people think about sex education as well. They immediately think of like public school classrooms. Um, right general for young people and adolescents, which is true. That was one of the ways that I started later on in my career. But really what I wanted to do was invite conversation and invite inquiry and curiosity. And that was how I came to do the work as a peer educator, is that so many of my friends had these wild ideas about what happens when we choose to have sex or after sex or we're thinking about finding a partner or partners. Um, nobody had good information. All of us right. were retelling the same stories and myths. It was just so wild to think that like, that's what we really believed. And, and so I started investigating, you know, this is before we really had the internet the way that we do today. Mm, so okay. Yep. Go to the library. <laughs> Look at newspapers. Um, and that's what I did. And it just expanded my curiosity. And I was like, oh, my friends and I don't know what, is really happening. So you make up these stories that we hear from other people who don't really know. And so, so that, that was where origins come from as far as how I came into the field as a young person. But also for me, sex education is also about supporting emergent professionals in their sex mm. education or sexuality journey, whatever that looks like. So I'm not someone that works with individual clients who are just like, I want to have better sex or right. learn how to do this thing. There are plenty of educators who do that. So I usually refer to them. 
Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people who are like, who do you know could help me with this? Right. But I don't do that work. I don't offer that kind of care. Instead, I want to offer the care to the people who are doing that, that type of care work. So, you know, just being clear about like, that wasn't for me. I had to try it out to realize, oh, this isn't what I want to do. Right. Doesn't make well, me. <laughs> well, people like you are needed, of course, because <laughs> someone has to teach people and get them to the point where they can do the therapy and the, all of that teaching and, inner, you know, individual interaction. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I've worked with a lot of people across our field doing different things. And it's been great. People have a lot of creative ideas and ways of moving in the world. And, you know, and then you have people who want to offer a different type of care, whether it be touching a client or a partner or whether it be helping people find partners and doing some matchmaking and networking. There's so many different paths to come into the field. And, you know, I think it's important for people to know that and that there aren't just three or four options. You can do so many different things. So not only have I built this anti-up professional development virtual freedom school, I've also created opportunities for people to collaborate and co-teach or co-facilitate where I'm able to recognize that, okay, I have a certain level of power in our field. Let me use my name and my status and bring some people who are newer to the field or have something important to say, and they just don't yet have a platform for people to access them in the same way. So that's really also been a core part of the work that I want to do in the future and moving forward is really about collaboration and not doing things on my own. It's just just not a reality where I think sustainability is for us to do the work. Yeah. I'm going to take a sip of water. So that's what you hear. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. And one, one topic I really would like to touch on with you is talking about what is sex positivity? Because, you know, I think there's some people out there who don't really understand what that means. And they're, you know, like I've talked to people and like, well, what do you mean? I think sex is positive. Like they don't really understand what it even means. They're like taking it as a literal, well, I think sex is positive. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, but <laughs> that's not really what it means. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. It was a term that really evolved in a more reactionary, more reactionary way. And so what I mean by that is people are being exposed to and identifying and noticing very negative perceptions of our bodies, how we move, our sexual expression, our gender expectations. And people were like, you know what, that's not for all of us. So what is another way of reimagining what's possible? Right. And so reactionary in that kind of way, like responding to what was occurring. And so in many ways, I love the history. And it's also important to think about like, how can this shape shift for it to be current as, as well for the 2020s of the world? And so I think for a lot of people, this idea of sex positivity was really grounded in aversion or or subversion, maybe I think the mm-hmm. word, like a daily act of subversion, but also thinking about how how we've we been trained or socialized in many different parts of our lives to think about sexuality as something that should remain super private, you never talk about, it's a silent experience. Um, and that really isn't the way that we learn. That's also not rooted in celebration. It's really rooted in a different type of uh, response to what occurs organically in some of our lives. And I think that was an area that really drew me in when it came to thinking about sex positivity. And I think today when people think about what is sex positive, it's not just saying, I support sex workers, I 
purchase ethical porn. I make my own porn, whatever it is, because that was, was really porn heavy at a particular moment. Mm, right. And even so, so much today that I think some people don't want to say, I don't think children should be exposed to porn because it will right. sound sex negative, right? Like those people exist. And I think maybe some people listening may have just noticed it was them. They're one of them. Um, <laughs> which is okay. You know, it's not like about shaming people because we know that shaming doesn't work, but it's really about raising awareness. If we are f- afraid of saying that young people should not be exposed to pornography, then what are we saying when we're quiet, right? Like that is yeah. a about. And and I think a lot of people would agree that, yeah, children don't need to be exposed to porn if they don't have to be, especially like free online porn and content. Right. right. You know, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, which goes to consent, which goes to body autonomy. Like these children didn't consent to that or to be exposed to it. And so it's a violation of how we're encouraging them to understand their bodies and minds and how they're responding to stimuli and phenomena and experiences. But I think what ends up happening with sex positivity is that people don't become critical in a particular way. Or when they do hear a critique, they immediately want to punch holes. And the reality is mm. a lot of don't share the same definition of sex positivity. You know, right. my definition is very different from yours, which might be very different from somebody else's. And I'm okay with that. Like, I don't feel like we all have to be in agreement. It's it's kind of like how we're not all in agreement about what sex is or how we're defining right. sex. True. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me, sometimes the questions are more important than the answers. And mm-hmm. when I think about sex positivity, I think about meeting people and cultures, especially on their own terms, right? So it's probably a very harm reductionist approach. And it doesn't need to be a challenge. It doesn't need to be a battle. It can just be existing and available for when people need it. Um, And it can show up and be present and be like, hey, I'm here. If you want to, you know, embrace what sex positivity offers for you at this moment, this is what it could be. So for me, I think when people claim sex positivity, what they're really trying to say in general is that they support people making decisions when they're conscious and they can consent in a particular way. Yes. I think they're also saying that the government should not come into our bedrooms in particular ways or create laws that shame us for what we find pleasure in, specifically when it's adults who are consenting, right? So sure, we can think of some examples where we want the government to help really is from a punitive system. Mm -hmm. If I embrace an abolitionist approach, I don't necessarily buy into the idea that the government should really be anywhere in my life when I'm making these personal decisions, but that's more complicated. I can get us into a whole other conversation, but I think people really want to have a positive understanding of what sex and sexuality is which is important because we've had so much for so long about a negative or more neutral ideas will harm us or lead us to the pits of hell or through some devastating. (laughs) Right. Which I'm like, look around, read the room. (laughs) 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 Um, But I think for me, sex positivity is also challenging myself to think about power and really Mm. Right. So asking myself, like, what power do I have? Why do I think I should exert that power over other people or tell the other people what to do? Um, And also, what kind of power do people have? How does my power shift and change in certain scenarios and instances? 
And that to me are some of the harder questions that we get to ask ourselves that opens us up to different critiques of sex positivity. So one, for example, could be uh, that sex positivity can be received as a very Western experience, something that the United States exports other parts of the world, which other parts of the world and people in them can really receive it as a form of colonization, a form of harm, a form of violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Saying you're doing it wrong, you know, your people and your and your prayer or your system, they, they don't work, and that you know is real. We have, we need to grapple with that reality that definitely people can feel oppressed when the United States mm-hmm. and says you should. Oh, yeah. So I think those are like the larger pieces <laughs> that show up, and for me that opens me up to thinking, oh yeah, how can sex positivity, the way that the United States promotes it or the way that people here talk about it, isolate certain groups of people. Uh, and those, I think, are the important conversations that I want to be a part of. And also learn from the people who have that perspective. Because it's not about them being wrong. It's about them having a, a level of information and knowledge that I can learn from, which uh, makes me do my work better and include them in the work that I do so that they don't always find isolation. Isolation is the opposite of liberation. We need each right. other to get free. So I could talk to you for a while about this. I'm going to pause and get some water. <laughs> okay. <laughs> One of the sentences that I read in your article that really I liked was the um, sex positive has no space for shame. And I really like that. I think it has no space. It, it doesn't belong there. There, It doesn't fit there. I just, I just liked the way you worded that. Yeah, you know, I think shame is just, we all can probably think of a time when we were shamed, or mm-hmm. shame shows up in our body minds, and we have a really somatic, even psychosomatic response to it, Yeah, where it really ignites something in us to this day, even if we think and believe we're healed from something, memories are really present. Uh, Toni Morrison called this rememory, or like the past is still present and it's still in the future. And these being really, I think, important realities for us to acknowledge. Some people might call this and promote the book, you know, the body keeps the score because our bodies will remember if our minds don't. So there's many different ways of knowing. And um, when we know that there's shame all around us and we want to move in a different direction or find a different path, it means that we have to reject the shame and unlearn it as we move. Right. I believe that we have to keep moving. We can't, and moving in this very, you know, ethereal way, not necessarily just only a physical one. Right. But movement away from the shame requires us to always be in a more consistent space that's a little bit more sustainable, where I acknowledge that like, okay, I'm unlearning this, but I'm not going to allow it to make me feel fear that I can't move forward. So I'm going to continue to learn. I'm going to continue to ask questions. I'm going to continue to read books and whatever it looks like. And then as we learn new things, we still unlearn the other parts of shame that still show up. And I think, um, you know, as someone who was raised agnostic, understood a little bit about some religions across the globe, but I haven't really ever thought about it, right? So for me, when I hear people talk about things like purity culture, it's just so foreign to me. I don't know what it means. Wasn't my experience. It's not something that I understand what the trauma is or what the violence has been in an intimate way. I can witness and I can learn, but I'm really not ever going to know through and through what purity culture is, what the harm is. 
Instead, I know a different type of shame, right? The shame of people making assumption that I have particular gender expressions, I therefore have a particular body part. Why aren't you mm-hmm. having kids? Why aren't you raising a family? I know that kind of shame. Right. Um, which is the opposite because that's a little bit of what culture <laughs> promotes. Right. So it's just, it's so many layers. And so when I think about having no space for shame, I really think of a really forward um, moving image in my head if I had to make it a little bit more realistic, where once you learn something new, you move a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more further from where you started, where you can get to a point where you can look back and reflect and say, wow, look at where I've come from. And it's because I've rejected the shame every part of the way. And it was a conscious, intentional decision. And that requires us to already be exposed to some shame, right? It, it's yeah. not that we just instantly come into the world and we stay pure and not enduring shame. Like children, babies learn about shame early. Right. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, so thinking about the space that shame takes up in our life, it's just so abundant and it doesn't need to be. I would rather abundance be something joyful. Absolutely. And the other thing I really liked that you talked about is like, I hadn't really heard this term before. Maybe I don't read in the right areas, but cis supremacy. I, you know, I mean, that totally, but I've never actually seen that actual word until I read your article. And I was like, wow, yeah, that that's a loaded word. And I, I totally get what it means. And you said sex positivity rejects cis supremacy and also embraces intersex community members, which I thought was a very interesting statement. And it's just cis supremacy is such a, it's such a loaded word and I had never heard it. So it kind of like jarred me. It's like, oh, wow. You know, like, yeah, that's a thing. <laughs> yeah, it is, right? It's it's wild. And this is one of the lessons that I learned from young people in my life. So even though I've been mentored and have mentored other people, I really intentionally seek out younger mentors than myself. Mm, um, yes. From as well. So I really reject that idea of adultification and that we all have to find someone older than us or have to make someone else older for us to learn from that. Like, I just don't buy into it. We can learn from each other in the moment. Right. Choose to. Um, so I learned about cis supremacy maybe almost a decade ago. Maybe mm. years. I can't remember. When I was on Tumblr, when Tumblr was like the really big. Oh, sure. Yeah. Which was before they put in sex negative approaches to targeting. Right. And, and harassing sexuality professionals, which is when I think a lot of us moved on to Instagram. <laughs> and, uh, right. But they do it too. I mean, they totally are. You know, look at all the people are using S3X to say sex, you know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Having to be creative and figure out new ways of talking about things. Mm-hmm. And I think, and so it was, you know, queer and trans and intersex youth online there that introduced me to the term, that talked about it. i their microblogs, learn from them, follow them, engage with them, have conversations, really building a relationship, not just right. me knowledge, but also me showing up and saying, hey, I'm paying attention and I value what you're sharing, what you're sharing. And it's really impacting me when I think about things, you know, thank you for that, right? So really attribution and, and gratuity. Um, and so when I think about cis supremacy, I think a lot about how I was trained. And this mm. is what I mean by I don't do the one-on-one trainings. Because I think there's something valuable in knowing that everybody got a similar training about our body, yeah. reproductive organs, and then realizing, oh, that that was a scam. 
(laughs) (laughs) You know, and everybody believed it. You know, people thought it was a great thing. And, you know, it's so not here to, you know, it's not about questioning doctors or their authority. It's really acknowledging like science is a constantly evolving field too. Um, Yes. And things change and, and we learn more. And so the way that I was trained to think about bodies and menstruation and puberty, it is so wrong. <laughs> what we understand. Um, yeah. And it's important to, to be able to say that. And it's important to, you know, acknowledge where a lot of these flawed ideas of youth and sex education and gender really show up. And it's deeply rooted in the gender binary. It's deeply mm-hmm. rooted in, in people assuming your cisness, right? So right. <laughs> gender expression and identity and you know we're not that we're really messy people human beings are messy sex is messy gender is messy consent is messy why we want to make it so clear-cut and defined is really wild to me um but you know cis supremacy in that way is one of the reasons why we don't ever learn about intersex people and when i was being trained what i learned about intersex and trans people is that we should try to change them right so i learned about conversion therapy right how do you cure someone from this and i won't cure someone from this (laughs) (laughs) right that's a medicalized version of how to work with people, right? Is try to find, to view them as broken and try right. to cure them. And what a boring way to engage with people, but also such a narcissistic way to think that you have the answer. Oh, yeah. And unrealistic. Exactly. Yeah. And, and totally harmful. And anyways, and there's plenty of people who ride that wave. Mm. One of them. And... So I think there's something to be learned from recognizing, oh, look, we're all trained in this way. We're supposed to honor the body parts and the names. But adding a layer to that, saying, why do you think all the names are the names of, like, cisgender men who are doctors? Like, why are you named after them? (laughs) (laughs) What's, why? Um, And these are the layers that we can start to peel back a little bit more and get a little critical how do we come to understand this? What is our field built upon? What do we give up when we only focus on these particular areas of focus? Then we right. begin to see what's revealed, that medicalization, deeply rooted in this gender binary, the sex assigned at birth binary, which in nature doesn't really exist. So why are we promoting right. it among humans? Um, and then, you know, after we can go through that understanding and unlearning, really recognizing Okay, so if different genders exist, if different sex assigned at birth exist, if cisness exists or not, who am I not hearing from and what can I learn from them and what can I bring into the work that I do using their brilliance and using their knowledge and their research? So for me, it's also about learning from and being in community with and in relationship with intersex and trans people who share and who research and who want us to engage with their work. And building relationships with those individuals and citing them and being able to say, all right, so we learned about a vulva. Let's talk about why it is that that's the way that we learn about it. What do we lose when we don't learn about a vulva from the perspective of experience versus the exp- versus the approach of function? I think that's mm. always taught to talk about our bodies as functioning bodies. Yeah, yeah, right. The experience of having a body, that to me is a lot more profound and interesting uh, than the function. Yeah, it's much more stark if you're all going to talk about is, okay, the function, this is what it does. You know, like you're leaving out so much stuff. It's almost ridiculous, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's so many gaps. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Like I have, I was talking to somebody once and she was like, well, I was born a woman 
why do I have to say cis woman? I was born a woman. I am a woman. I live as a woman. Why do I have to say I'm cis? It was just interesting to hear her say that. So it's like, she doesn't really realize that what she's saying is actually saying that she's the norm. You know what I mean? Like nothing else is norm. So she's saying, well, why should I have to say what I am? This is what I am. Well, everybody feels that way. So for her to say that, it just, I don't know, just kind of jarred me when she said it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's a really great example of how people are not as self-aware as they think they are. Right. Right. I know who I am. Yeah. But do you know how you're perceived and received by others? Like, right. You're sharing this space. You're not moving through the world on your own. And if you really do want to make connection, and if you really do want to be in community, you have to understand more about yourself and not just who you are. But you also have to be curious about who are other people and how do you show up and demonstrate that to individuals without being a jerk. Right. <laughs> and jerk, you know, again, is subjective, but I think it's important to be mindful of like what is okay to say in context. And really, I think when people make those arguments, they're saying, I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to have to do too much work when everybody else is doing significantly more work. And that really is- I hate. That, you know, that that's what I mean by like, it's not self-aware. Like, people don't understand that they just right. get coast through while other people are showing up to create something different. Um, yeah. And it's really narcissistic to think, well, I shouldn't have to say anything. This is how I was born. And this is my organs. And I'm, I live as a female. You know what I mean? Like, thinks I just shouldn't have to say anything because she that's what she is. Like, that's like basically saying that she's normal and everybody else isn't. You know, this is also really common. It is the way that cis supremacy works for people to really just say, no, I'm going to uphold it by not doing anything. And when you have other people who are like, you know, I'm questioning or I'm asking why or, uh, you know, choosing to engage in, in this path versus that one, that offers up a different representation. And if there's enough people who are like, but that's wrong and that's weird and and that doesn't make any sense or starts to ask questions like, but is that what the doctor told you? But is that? this is where their responses really reveal what their valuing framework is. Um, right want to move in the world and how they want to engage with other people when they want people to be like them and feels really jarring when people are like actually i'm not like you i didn't have that relationship with the doctor or with my parents right gender and does it say anything about you (laughs) it says more about (laughs) yeah a lot of people don't want to consider it or even be confronted in in a particular way which you know there's always there's going to be people who are not going to move forward and that's their life that's what they want yeah yeah so you know for me i'm like let them do what they need to do and find and need to find um i don't need to make it harder for them you know like that's my goal is not to make it hard for those people that's what they want to do right they can do it over there as long as they're not (laughs) exactly you stay over there then yeah (laughs) Yeah, he's there (laughs) yeah I was talking to another sex educator on a podcast recently, and she was telling me how she went to the doctor and they had a diagram of a female body. And literally the diagram had no clitoris on it. She was like, I was just jarred. Like, you can't just ignore a body part, but yet is. And this was like, how ridiculous is that? You would never like see a drawing of someone with a penis where there's no penis. Right. Exactly. Unless it's a Ken doll. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like <crazy. laughs> yeah. it's so wild. I'm like, this is like the medicalization, right? So yeah, 
also like the small things where a lot of sex educators think I'm going to bring conversation about the clitoris. That's going to make it pleasure-based. And actually it's not just pleasure-based. It's also thinking about that to me is the function of the clitoris. People think it's about pleasure, but for people who don't get pleasure from their clitoris, that's not the function for them. Right. So really thinking. Right. But this, you know, when sex educators bring in the clitoris into conversation, what they're doing is offering something a little bit more medically accurate. They're not necessarily rooted in pleasure. And so these are different things. You know, when we think about pleasure, what does it mean to remove pleasure from our genitals and think about like, oh, I gain pleasure when my partner massages oil on my body. I get pleasure when I'm getting a foot rub or I smell a a scent that reminds me of something joyful, whatever it is. Like there's just so many different ways that we experience pleasure, but when we only focus on the genitals, we begin to notice, oh, the medical models of our bodies are also really, really lacking. (laughs) accuracy and representation. And when we start from there, we realize, oh, where else is it lacking? What are the other things that I've been told are bad? You know, so there's people who walk around the world thinking that certain types of food have no nutritional value or are good or bad, which I think binaries are scams. And Foods might be bad for me because my body can't digest them and I feel sick, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be bad for everybody or bad for you know, my partner or whoever it is. Anyways, that's a little bit of a tangent. And back to, you know, just reminding ourselves that there's so many ways to do the work and we start just with a little bit of noticing, wow, this image doesn't have a, you know, a clitoris. And if I compared an image of the penis, the penis would never have gone away. Those I think are really interesting. But, you know, for people, you know, people may find this podcast and they may be at religious institutions and taking a physiology class that are literally blocking out the vulva and the penis and the scrotum and even some breast tissue right so it's scary to know that people can get a degree in an anatomy and physiology class and not right information yeah i know it's crazy Mm -hmm. absolutely so just unbelievable, but it's true. And, you know, I think I heard someone quote recently that, you know, even, you know, doctors, you know, medical doctors, they, they get like maybe one or two classes that maybe talk about sexuality. And then like I said, that's it. You know, it's it's like very, very small amount of information is actually presented to them in their program. Right. Absolutely. And they have to do a, like make a decision that they want to learn how to do things around like abortion procedures, which are some really common gynecological interventions. You know, like it's not just for an elective termination. Like people need them because they have ectopic pregnancies and they experience a miscarriage. Right. It's literally a healthcare procedure. And yes, a quest to learn how to do it. Like that to me is the really wild part. And and that's what we're going to be noticing is coming down probably early next year. We'll see a lot more data around how this is impacting newly matriculated doctors coming into like ER work, coming into GYN work, who don't know what yeah. to do because they don't have the knowledge of the body that includes the genitals. And also, you know, reminding us that there's so many things that can happen in our body minds that, you know, we could have a urinary tract infection, but if a doctor doesn't know what to look for, if they don't understand what the symptoms may be, or even to ask about them, it can go undiagnosed. And and that can be a form of medical abuse. Right. I mean, it just, it's, it's a snowball effect when we don't learn 
the fullness of what our bodies and minds are made of. Um, and that's another thing that I think a lot of sexuality professionals promote is that like our brain is our most sexual part of our body, which is, that's another wild statement to me because we only know about 40% of what the brain is capable of. (laughs) That's true. And like, there's never been in the history that I know of math right now, someone saying, oh, we know 40% about this organ. Let's say it's (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good point. (laughs) Yes, there's that part. But there's also this reality of disability and how intellectual disabilities impact our brain. And so when people say that, I'm immediately thinking, you don't know anybody who's disabled. You're not in community with disabled people who have brain injuries or whose brains have been impacted in a particular way because Mm -hmm. your statement like, oh, brain is the most sexual part of our body. Mostly those people will also be in alignment with limiting disabled people's access to pleasure and care and sex. Right. Right. Which is just not all right. That's ableism, that's oppression, that's harm. And it also makes an assumption based on what we think is healthy and unhealthy. And right. assuming yes. that people who are sick or disabled or mad shouldn't be able to experience pleasure is wild to me. Yeah. But you'll have a lot of well-known sexuality people really double down on that statement. Uh, and, you know, for me, it's just, I get it, but also that it's wrong. <laughs> I think it's incorrect. It is wrong. And I think it's really sad. I mean, you know, I think about like, this is like a totally weird example, but like my grandma, when she went into the nursing home, she could no longer have a toaster. I mean, so that was so sad to her because that was something she'd had every day, toaster. She could no longer have toast. Like her entire quality of life was affected. Why also do we not let people have some sort of way to express their sexuality when they go into a nursing home? And I think about, okay, so you might lose your pet. You might lose your toaster. You lose your sexuality. How depressing is that? Who wants to get old and get put into this stark environment where you can't have any of this stuff that is enjoyable to you? It's very sad. Right. And you're put in this place where like everybody knows what you're experiencing because there's yeah. a situation and you bond over this traumatic experience. Right. Yeah. Make new friends. Of course, you know, you're going to be activated and want to find touch and care that's familiar. Yes. And then you're in this mm-hmm. space. No, keep your hands away from each other. Don't touch each other. You can't yes. be with each other. Like it just is bananas to me. It is. And I had never thought about it until I read it in your, your article. I was like, oh my gosh, that's so true. How disturbing. Yeah, yeah. And then adding to that with our elders and seniors, you know, why we need specific spaces for queer and trans elders. So they're not harassed and harmed when they're in environments where they're not welcome, where people can still bring their discriminatory practices even into their old age. Um, So that becomes an issue. Usually people, you know, I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of, you know, elders who are in care outside of their homes, around other elders, how people are like, we have to talk about why one person is acting this way and other people are acting this way. And it's all sexualized expression. And it really, you know, so the problem here isn't that anybody's going to get pregnant. The problem or the concern is disease transmission, right? Viral or bacterial infection. Sure. Um, people who already have a lot of probably other medical needs that can mm-hmm. be complicated with that. Like, I get it. And also... These people are like in their 80s and 90s. Like, why are we telling them don't enjoy what's left? I know, right? I understand it. <laughs> That's yeah. just so messed up beyond 
I mean, interesting because that's something I had never really thought about. But when you explained it, I immediately knew what you were talking about because that's how that's the reality. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Some people don't want to think about it because it's sad. And for me, mm-hmm. I, you know, as I shared earlier, like I've always been like thinking about the future. So right. for me, I've always imagined aging. It's been exciting for me. I've never seen it as like something to be scared of. And for, so for me, I'm like, I want to be the elder that still makes those sexual decisions for myself or that's right. trying to do, or that's guided in a way that's aligned with my body autonomy um, and not something that I'm going to be fearful of or that's going to be snatched away from me. So that's been something that's also helped me think through, you know, if I have the gift of aging, what kind of elder do I want to be and how do I want to be seen and viewed as a sexual person? Um that's really important to me as well. And also thinking about how can we expand our understandings of intimacy beyond, yes. you know, exchanging bodily fluids or genitals, but just the companionship, being able to have someone witness your experiences, talk to you. Those are the intimate relationships that I think can also be nurtured, not just as we age, but throughout our lives. And that's something that we're not really getting into when we think about sex ed, that we can teach people about how to be better friends, how to build long-lasting friendships, how to understand if you're being respected or trusted, and how to maintain those connections. Um, You know, we don't get to dive into it if we don't have the sex ed accessible to us. I think that's another element of sex positivity is that we're not creating a hierarchy on what are the more important relationships. we're really saying we can have all the relationships that we may need in our lives and what are the ways that we can sustainably nurture them that is a different approach than saying oh you need to find a partner and get married and have a baby and those are going to be the most important people in your life Mm. right it doesn't have to be that way (laughs) right exactly it's very closed-minded yeah yeah very just very structured (laughs) clear down already not always fun. But yeah, it's a really common narrative. One other thing I wanted to touch on when talking with you is sexuality and women of color. I interviewed a woman who was a podcaster and an erotica author, and she mentioned that she felt that in, throughout history, there's been an over-sexuality of women of color. And what do you have to say about that? And how do we go about changing that. I mean, I guess it's all it's opinion, but did you agree with that statement also? So I think it, I think it depends on what we're looking at and what questions we're asking. I think there has been an over-sexualization people. I don't think it's just women in general. But I think when we really focus in on certain communities and certain experiences because people have been racialized in the United States Mm -hmm. in a particular way, that we do begin to notice historically how certain groups of people have been dehumanized and therefore stripped of all layers of humanity and therefore literally only being seen as like a whole at the end of the day. Right. Mm -hmm. Their finger, their their face, their penis, whatever, and two. And that to me is a see revealed uh, everywhere uh, when we look and peel about the layers in a variety of different cultures and communities. When we look in the U.S. context, that is really the basis for a lot of work. So I think for when we look in the, into the United States and take a deep look, like this is the foundation that the country that we understand to be and that we celebrate and uphold this constitution, it was built on dehumanizing people that were different and dehumanizing right 
you know, people who were here, people who were brought over. This is how capitalism was built, was through chattel slavery, through conquering, conquest. So yes, all of that is present, but we have to keep in mind that it wasn't all that mattered. This was a very Western way of viewing communities that already existed. We get into those communities that were already here, really diving into what was happening in those communities. They weren't necessarily devoid of misogyny or of dehumanization. There was right. still pain and harm and violence. Um, so it takes many different shapes. But I think at the core, things like colonization, which is still alive and well, the United States has five colonies. Sure. Um, it's it's real. And it may not look the exact same way, but the fact that rape is still used as a weapon of war is right. a fact. <laughs> the reality of what we know of refugee communities who are fleeing civil wars, we understand the negative impact of how multiple births for a young girl who's married when she's 10 leads to mm to poverty. You know, these are just examples that we know of, which is why people are shocked with decisions that lawmakers are making in certain states in the U.S. where we have an 11-year-old who's pregnant because of rape and incest. Exactly. No, it's a blessing from who's God. Like, our communities move and that's how you each other, right? So here I think is where this ideology supersedes our humanity and that's not love at the end of the day. No, no, no. no. So yeah, so I think there, there are, there's definitely proof, archival documentation of the de- dehumanization, which has looked like the over-sexualization. What I think mm, gets yeah. messy in a way that I like, that I like mess, is when we try to examine what's occurring today with women of color, specifically women who have been racialized in the United States, and viewing what they're producing for us to consume as highly sexual, right? What are the connections? How is that showing up? How framework are we using? Are we using a body autonomy framework? Are we using a framework of shame? Are we using a framework that doesn't translate into the 2020s? You know, I think these are really important conversations. We don't have the same conversations when men do them of any racial category in the same level as women. I think right. a great example um, is Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion's song, WAP, What Ass Pussy. Like, we saw a lot of backlash and also a lot of celebration around this song. And, you know, it sounded to me a lot like Tipper Gore, who wants to complain about Two Life Crew in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> Tent stickers on CDs and DVD. You know, like that's what it sounds like to me. And so we just see this pattern that evolves where people question why are those women doing those things with their bodies? Because they want to is enough right. of an answer. Why why do we need to make it harder? They wanted to. That's what they did. That's right. It. We don't have to look for anything deeper than it's the <laughs> truth. You know? So so I think that becomes a little bit more messy and interesting when thinking about what does over-sexualization look like and how many people try to poke holes in in the facts when they want to use information to their their benefit um, or make a particular scenario seem like it's in support of them. I see this a lot with second wave feminists who are women over 60 who have a really hard time 
embracing and learning from sex workers. They see them as uh-huh. being dead. They see them as like capitalism harming them, yet they never sit and talk with them. They never go to the sex worker event. They will always want the sex workers to come to them. That's not how you build relationships or learn. Sure, sure. So yeah, so those are just some of the things that immediately come to mind when I think about that. But yeah, you know, we created the Women of Color Sexual Health Network because there were no women of color in our field that show up in full at like these membership organizations or at these conferences. There were so few of us. And we just ended up latching onto each other and going to all the same sessions because they were our sessions and we wanted to learn from each other. Um, and so we were saying things like, okay, there's only 18 of us at this like conference of 600. How do we show up? How do we keep in touch? And so it really became a space for people to find support and care and affirmation. And, um, and that's, you know, it's evolved into what it is today, but those are really like the, the grounding, because if we're not in the room and people are talking about us, they're going to get it wrong. If they're talking about our community, right. they're not going to understand. Um, so yeah, that was like a lot of the origin pieces about why we even mobilized together. Wow. That's, that's amazing. That's an amazing story. Very, very needed. Yeah. This has been very intriguing. (laughs) It's kind of mind-blowing. Is there anything that that we didn't talk about yet that you would like to mention or Mm -hmm. discuss or point out or just a general statement you'd like to make? Thank you. There's so many different things. Let me think. I want to encourage people to like keep asking questions and keep staying curious and looking towards expanding what it is you want to offer. And if you're interested in learning more, all my classes are at antiuppd.com. So you can find me online. You can also do an internet search for me. I will pop up. I'm accessible on purpose. And and yeah, we deserve to be wherever we want to. So I hope people enjoyed our time together. And yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, yes. Oh, I do have one question. How long does your certification take? Or do you have more than one or is it just the one and and how long does it take? Yeah, so it's just one right now. And I've really set it up for people, depending on what their time looks like, can complete it in like four to six months. So yeah, it's a mashup. Some people take a year. Some people, like I just had someone go through it and took them maybe three to four months. So it really depends on what people's time look like and what level of commitment they can offer. Each class is offered three times a year. And so I'll have the 2023 uh, schedule up probably by the end of this month, early November, for people to start signing up for classes. You can take one class at a time. You don't have to sign up for the certification until you've been like, let me see what Bianca is really like in person. Um, Right. (laughs) That course, if you decide to take the certificate, those courses that you've already completed are removed from the requirement. Um, Yeah. So email me if you have questions. I'm definitely around. Thanks for asking. Yes. And then you're on Instagram is, let's see, I guess I could spell it or do you, do you say it? (laughs) It's a Latina sexologist. And Latina is a Spanglish term that recognizes my experience being from Puerto Rico and also in the United States as a Black Puerto Rican. So yeah, it's, I love words that challenge us (laughs) in many ways. I know, right? (laughs) Yeah. So you can find me there as well. Very awesome. Yeah, I love words too. As a writer, I, I totally love words. I'm like, oh, what's that? You know. <laughs> well, thank you so much for for chatting with me. You're a very interesting person, and I hope people seek you out. And it's, you had a lot of amazing things to say. Thank you so much for talking with me. 
Thanks so much. Take care. You, you have a good day. Bye. Bye-bye. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast episode. I hope you found it as interesting as I did. She's a great person to talk to, a great resource for our world to help promote sexuality and openness and just try to make it better. You know, that's the goal, right? And remember to always enjoy your own body and don't ever stop giving yourself and or your partner's pleasure. Make it a priority. Again, down in the podcast notes are my links to my link tree. You can get my Skinny Dipping at the Pond in a Hot Summer Day, book one out just released in audiobook. Magic and Her Kisses is also my recent release in audiobook. Decadent Erotica is my most recent long book. And at the time of this airing, my The Car Sex Challenge book three in the Sex Challenge series is going live on December 10th, 2022. So this is Friday the 9th. So tomorrow it goes live. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this. And I hope you have an amazing, sexy fucking day. And don't forget to get some Fuck It Coffee from my sponsor, Fuck It Coffee and Kiro Sex Toys. Oh, and if you are Christmas shopping, down in the podcast notes, I have my link to all of my deals. I have a bunch of deals, affiliates that I work with, where I do receive an advertising fee if you purchase through the link at no added cost to you. But you get a discount on sex toys, Kiro sex toys, Bucket Coffee, so many different sex toy companies and sex toy products. So get that, get to the link down in the podcast notes and you will be able to get the discount Just click the link and the discount is embedded right in it. Okay, you have an amazing, sexy fucking day. Love ya. Bye-bye now. Ready for some spring cleaning of your beard and groin hairs? Try out Manscaped products where you can get 20% off with my new code RUIN, R-U-A-N, to get 20% off and free shipping. In order to get the discount, use the promo code RUIN, R-U-A-N, to do that spring cleaning to get yourself ready for sexy times. Heat up your spring with a new shave, a new trim. Perhaps try going there. Get more skin smacks in the bedroom, if you know what I mean.